Good. Well, I want to share a message with you. I started two weeks ago. Obviously, I did not preach last week, and uh, we were thrilled to have another guest, uh, Bobby Petricelli, come, and he did an awesome job. But two weeks ago, I started a series. We kicked off the new year with a series entitled The First Step to Your Greatest Successes in Life. I don't believe that life is meant to be one success. I believe all of life was meant to be successful. I believe that that is in the heart of God. God never planned misery. God never designed failure. God never intended for heartache or breakup. God always intended, as we see the world before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2, he always intended that life would be filled with life and life full of abundance that radically changed in chapter 3 a dismal failure on the part of the very first Adam and so I believe that God doesn't want you just to have a, a, a success in 2023 or a couple of successes I believe that God wants us to have successful lives now we can define or uh, determine what success means by many different ways. But I want to categorically state that what the world called success is not always what God calls success. A successful life is a life that is filled with a love for God and filled with the love of God. There's nothing that will ever make you more secure than knowing how much God loves you. And so a successful life is not only a life filled with a love for God, but being filled with the knowledge, the understanding, the absolute conviction that you are loved by God. Listen, a child grows in confidence when it grows up in an environment where mom and dad are constantly giving the child validation, praising it, building it up, commending it, encouraging it. And in a similar way, our lives can change drastically and change for the better as we become convinced of God's love for us. Let, let me break that down a little bit more. God doesn't just love me because I was a sinner and on my way to hell, and so he said, oh, what the heck, let's rescue this guy. No, God loves me like his cuddly own little kid. He loves me not enough just to save me. I mean, this becomes personal to God. He loves me because I am his. He, he's fascinated with me. I know you sit here week after week and think, yeah, there's not that much to be fascinated with. But that's why God is God. He has this immense capacity to always be fascinated with us. Our love or our affection for each other can wane. All you have to do is check the divorce records, and you know that human love can falter. It can break down. We give people reasons to think less of us. But this is what I've found that even when I do give God reasons to think less of me, it never changes his opinion. He loves me irrespective. That's the kind of love that when we become convinced of that type of love, that God gets us and he loves us, and that when we falter, when we make a mistake, he's not gonna step on us to extinguish us, but he's gonna pick us up and love us. People have been taught that God is punitive, always looking to cut you down, tell you off. I've never seen a child grow and become strong and confident and positive and happy in life in an environment where the parents are constantly only ever correcting and pulling down. And yet the devil wanted to create an image of God in religion that mirrors that very image. And so, so many Christians are living less than what we're destined to live. It is God's, God's actual purpose that 
our whole life is a life of success, starting with loving him and knowing that we are loved by him. Understanding that I don't need to feel inferior when the most superior person in the universe thinks highly of me. You see, God sees me at my potential even when I'm living at my worst. That's the kind of person I want to hang around. That's the kind of person I want speaking into my life. And that's why I devour the word of God because that's God's way of speaking into our life. A life of success is a life of loving God and knowing you are loved by God. It will heal you of your phobias. It'll heal you of your fears. It'll heal you of your insecurities. It'll heal you of the damage that other relationships have caused inside of you. Look to your left. You've just seen a piece of artwork that is scratched and dented and a little broken. But you have also seen God's creation and God sees it as redeemed and beautiful and precious. Yeah, give him a clap. Come on, give him a clap. And unfortunately, you know, Paul mentions, and I say this often, the Apostle Paul says in one of his epistles that there are doctrines of demons. And I think one of the doctrines that demons and Satan have scribbled the most into church awareness and consciousness is a God who's a judge. If you read scripture, you will see that God only takes the position as a judge at the end of the ages. Until then, he's creator and he's father. He's my dad. And unfortunately, sometimes our human relationships overshadow. If they've been negative, they overshadow and cast or blur a discrepancy onto the image of God. God wants us to be successful. Success is defined by having a great relationship with God and knowing you're greatly loved and then having great relationships with one another. Success is not always determined by being first in the world's eyes. Success is not always determined by being the most popular. Success is not always determined by how much money you have. Because I have found a lot of people with very little happiness, and yet they have money. And I have found some people who have less than, and they are very happy on the inside. I'm not preaching against money. I'm not preaching for money. I'm saying that a material element like money isn't the foundation of our happiness. Hello? Now, can money used the right way add to our happiness? Absolutely. And God has no problem with it. If you read in Genesis chapter 1, God's the one who put the gold in the ground. God's the one who put the precious stones in the ground. The devil is the one who makes it a priority and changes our focus so that it becomes the center of our life. So much so that Jesus one time referred to money as a spirit. He called it mammon. Not manna, mammon. He said, in the spirit of mammon, drunkens people's minds and absorbs their attention so that the focus becomes about how much mammon we can get. And Jesus said, you can't serve mammon and God. One must submit to the other. Tithes and offerings is a good way for me to keep practicing that mammon will submit to the Father in heaven. Can I get an agreement? Yeah. Do you know, a lot of people think about tithes and offerings as what I have to give away. <laughs> 
When I give tithes and offerings, it's an insurance for me that my life stays focused and centered on the things that really matter and really count. Absolutely. The first step to your greatest success in life, last week or two weeks ago when I did preach, um, I preached my sermon title while this series is called The First Step to Your Greatest Successes in Life. The sermon title last week was called The Garden of Conflict. Every one of us visit the garden of conflict. Heck, for some of us, it's a city. <laughs> for some of us, it's a metropolis. In Matthew 26, verse 38, and I'm going to quickly review and move on. Jesus said to his disciples, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. It's only hours before his crucifixion. And he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I cannot re-preach last week's message and I realize a lot of new people have come into the church even since the, the 1st of January. Many new faces here last week and even today. And thank you. I love that you're here. Keep coming. It's a bene casa. <laughs> it's a good house. All right? We're going to teach you about Jesus and teach you principles that will make a difference. But I said the soul is the seat of our thoughts. And if we could throw this up really quickly, it's the seat of our thoughts. Uh, the soul holds, uh, sorry, uh, yes, the seat of our thoughts, it holds the mind of our intellect. That includes everything from your thought processes, your reasoning, your rationale, your belief systems, ideologies, and your memories. But the soul also houses, if we go to the next screen, our emotions. And there are two minds within your, your soul. There is the mind of your intellect and the mind of your emotions. You can think one way and have a philosophy or an ideology and then emotionally feel very different about it. We can speak faith, 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 and yet in our emotions actually experience fear, fear, fear. Okay, so there are two different minds that operate in your soul. Uh, the mind of the emotions includes all of our emotional responses as well as intuitive impressions. So you have these two thinking minds inside of you. No, you're not really schizophrenic. You actually have two different minds. And then there's the mind of the spirit, but we're not going to go there right now. You have to understand how you were created. There is the mind of intellect, rationale, reason, the mind that is full of thoughts that have been taught as uh, belief systems, ideologies. They frame you. They make you. They can also break us. Wrong thoughts become the house for demonic activity. Don't have time to go there today, but the Bible makes it very clear that demons will live in thought patterns, whether it's a thought pattern of prejudice or a thought pattern of bias or a thought pattern of fear or phobia or whether it's a thought pattern uh, of agnosticism. But demons will live in thought uh, so anyway, the soul has the mind of the intellect, the mind of emotions. These two minds, when they come into agreement, trigger our will. The best decisions we could come to on a natural level are decisions that are formed in the environment of agreement between the mind of the intellect and the mind of your emotions. And so the third area of your soul is your will. Usually the will is activated in consultation and agreement between the mind of the intellect and the mind of emotions. A soul in distress, what do I mean by that? Every one of us have fractures in our soul. What do I mean by that? Every one of us have places of hurt. We've learned how to cover them over with dirt. We've learned how to cover them over with time. We've learned how to cover them over with other interests. We bury them in our memories, but every one of us, if you're more than one year old, you probably have some fractures in your soul. Trauma hurts wounds. A soul in distress or trauma will gener generally respond out of only 
one, the mind of the intellect or the mind of emotions. When you deal with a person who only ever gives you a logical response and they can never feel anything or act with care or concern or passion or love or sensitivity, when you meet a person like that, you want to rattle them enough that you want to grab them by the ankles if you could and bang the head against the wall a couple of times to knock some sense into them. They're so logical, they have no feeling, so we want to have the ministry of giving them some feeling. Here, let me bang you against the wall. Not really. I had to say that last bit. Not really. Emotionally, we go there sometimes. And when you deal with a person who's only ever emotional and there's never any logic, there's never any consistency, there's never any process of thought, we also know that that becomes erratic. And that is the evidence of a fractured soul. When we have been hurt in the areas of our hurt, sometimes we go to pure logic and we shut out all emotion. Sometimes in the areas of our hurt, we're just all emotional. No logic. Have I touched on anyone in this room so far this morning? Yeah. Our best decisions generally in the natural come when we make decisions out of a well-informed mind of intellect and a healed, stable mind of emotions. And with that, it triggers the will. Okay. Uh, I said in Thessalonians chapter 5 last week, the Bible says that we are spirit, soul, and body. I don't have time to go there today, but let me make something very clear. There are divine laws in the spirit world, and they're hidden in the Bible, okay? And some of these laws are actual progressions. Unless you start with step one, you'll never get to step two, and you'll never get to step three. And most people never see the progressions. You have to, I want you to understand that spirit, soul, and body is a divine progression. When God created man, he hot-wired him so that his best version of himself will always function first out of who he is as a spirit, secondly, who he is as a soul, and thirdly, who he is as a physical body. The spirit speaks to the soul, and the soul speaks to the body. And that will always be the best version of who you are. That's how God designed it. Again, uh, I do this in Bible college. I don't have time here today. But at the fall of mankind, not, was, not only was all of God's divine order turned topsy-turvy, if you want to bring chaos, what do you do? You take something and turn it topsy-turvy. Fill up my cup and let me turn it upside down in the middle of the table and we've got chaos, right? And that's exactly what the devil did. He took God's divine order, turned it topsy-turvy. But not only that, he took man as an individual and who we are meant to be and how we're meant to function and he turned us on our head upside down. And so in the world, you will hear this phrase, but always out of divine order. The world will always say body, soul, and spirit. Now that might seem like just a, a you know, why you even, no, there's spirit behind this. You are not a body first, you are not a soul second, and you are not a spirit third. The best function of you is when we function out of our spirit, and our spirit is in submission to the spirit of God, and it speaks to our soul and to our physical body. The world has gone crazy because of this one element, this one issue. We are driven by our flesh dictating to the rest of us by a mind filled with negative memories, wrong priorities and wrong ideologies and emotions that are out of control. This is a divine order. And if we are gonna have our greatest successes in life, if we're gonna live that way, we have to understand how we have been created and get back to the manufacturer's program. Can I get an agreement here? Come on, if you agree, put your hands together. 
There's nothing like God's word and God's order to bring us back to the manufacturer's specifications. It doesn't matter how much the world will break you, God has a way through Jesus Christ to remake you. Oh, I like that. That sounds good. It doesn't matter how much the world has broken you or can break you, God has a way through Jesus Christ to remake you. Yeah, that was good preaching. Very quickly, whenever we respond out of our soul first, it will produce soulish fruit. Secondly, whenever we respond out of the desires or urges of our physical body, it will produce freshly fruit. The garden of conflict, you can go there anywhere in the world. You could be in your bedroom and walk into the garden of conflict. The garden of conflict is where our will and our way crosses God's will and God's way. The Garden of Eden brings us back to where the first Adam visited the Garden of Conflict and he failed. He listened to his soul and his body and ignored his spirit and the spirit of God. I will prove that to you next week. Next week I'm preaching a message entitled Soul Control. Soul Control. I will break down how your soul operates even more. It'll be crystal clear. And I will show you why it goes wrong, how it goes wrong, and how you can uh, rewire that so that you have control over your soul. How many of you think you want to show up next week? All right. Uh, <clears throat> The Garden of Gethsemane brings us to where Jesus, the last Adam, visits the Garden of Conflict. He was troubled in his soul. He knows what's about to happen. He lets us know he was troubled in his soul. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he was in the Garden of Conflict. He said, God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Come on, break it down to street language. This is today. What did Jesus say? God, if there's another way of saving the world rather than me having to be pinned to a cross and whipped like a, what's that thing you have at birthdays and you? Piñata, there you go. Is that how you say it in Spanish? Piñata. 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 No wonder they hit it. Piñata. It sounds angry. Piñata. Pastor Tom is going to be my piñata. Ah! All right. I just lose it once in a while. That's okay. I never said I wasn't broken. Got to reel those emotions back in. So... <clears throat> Jesus visits the garden. Jesus visits the garden of conflict in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's got to deal with the mind of his logic and the mind of his emotions. Because whatever decision comes out of those two, that's what he's going to do. And Jesus goes to his spirit and responds out of his spirit and tells his spirit to tell his mind what to do and his emotions what to do. And he submits to the will of the Father. And we know that because he said, even though I feel this way, God, even though I feel like a schizo, my thoughts are going one place, my emotions are going another place, God, not my will, but your will be done. Okay. It is where, you know, Jesus shed his blood to redeem us from the curse. The first drops of blood was shed in the garden of conflict. Yes, they were shed in the garden of Gethsemane. He sweat drops of blood. None of the gospel writers mentioned this, only Luke. Luke wasn't present. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Luke was a doctor who took it on himself to collate all the information from all the witnesses who lived with Jesus and followed him, and he made a historically accurate account. 
The other three gospel writers, when they wrote about this, didn't see the significance of the fact that Jesus sweat and sweat blood at the same time. But it took Luke's attention. He's the only gospel writer who writes it because he understood that this was the initial stages of a human life breaking down to the point of death. And so he makes note of it in his gospel. But why it's so important to us on a spiritual level is because the curse came because Adam said, my will, not your will, be done. And here Jesus, the very first act of redemption, he is shedding his blood on a cursed soul so that you and I can be released from the sin nature and have a nature that is now led by the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I am so glad he came to the party. Today's message is called deception. Sorry, perception, deception. Perception, deception. I said the first step to your greatest successes in life is by coming to the place where you can honestly say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That it, when we can honestly come there and put our fears aside, our insecurities aside, put our, our desires aside. We have taken the first step to our greatest successes. If that is the first step to your greatest successes in life, then the number one obstacle to you praying, not my will, but God's will be done, is perception deception. Everybody say, perception deception. I want to burn it in your head. Turn to somebody, look them in the eye and say, perception deception. There you go. I'm going to show you what perception deception is. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? If you read chapter 2, you'll see God said to Adam, before he created Eve, Eve had secondhand knowledge. It was Adam's responsibility to protect his woman. Men, listen to me. You better get spiritual because if you want to get back to divine order, it is the man's responsibility to get knowledge from God firsthand and to be the protector of his family. Every one of us want to be macho. Every one of us want to be strong. Every one of us want to fill the picture of what a rugged man is. But the most rugged, strongest man is the man that God designed. And it's a man who's not a who's not timid to be spiritual. Amen. A spiritual man is a strong man because a spiritual man can say no to his body. A spiritual man can say no to his soul. A spiritual man can say no to the onslaught of a public opinion and stand in opposition to the majority. I don't know how the devil made the image of spirituality wussy. You cannot be spiritual in a material world and be a wuss. Hang on a second. If you really got what I just said and if you really believe it, you need to stand up and give the Lord a standing ovation. Come on. Come on. There is nothing wussy about being spiritual. There's nothing weak about being a man or a woman of God. There is nothing limp about being spiritual for Jesus. It takes a hero in a demon-infested world to remain spiritual. Amen. Well, I had fun doing that. Did you have fun doing that? Say, my, my emotions go AWOL every once in a while. And then my logic pulls in and says, okay, Rob, they're looking at you. He said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What a bull artist. That is full of 
baloney. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Read chapter two. God said, you can eat as much as you want from all the trees. There's only one tree. Don't touch. In fact, he said, don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch. He said, don't eat it. So where does the devil start? From the most opposite position of God. Why? Because that's where he wanted to take man's perception of God. To the opposite of who God is. He said, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? And Eve doesn't catch it. She brings a, a slight correction. And she says, the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman. Let me tell you something. In God's divine order, how he created you, you're a young Christian. I'm telling you how you were created to function at your optimum, spirit first. When you follow your spirit, your spirit will always follow God. The spirit was created to always be in communication with God. When we follow our spirit, we will always follow the spirit of God. When we follow our fleshly desires or our soul, the things that we have been taught, the hurts, the memories, the logic, the ideologies, it will always lead us away from the will of God. And so, when God told Adam and Eve, they will surely die, what it says in the Hebrew, your spirit will shut down. And your capacity to hear me and have communication with me will disappear. From that moment on, man became spiritually dead. He no longer functioned in the arena to be able to hear from God. And so he became a living soul rather than an attentive spirit. Are you hearing me, church? Okay? And so the devil says, you won't surely die. Why? He wants the spirit to, to become deadened, to become dormant, because he cannot turn you topsy-turvy while your spirit is awake. And so he deadens the spirit, so now you have no option but to feed the soul through the gateways of the physical body. What you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch, what you feel. Okay? It was his ploy to turn man upside down and take him out of God's divine order. He says, you will surely not die. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You know why there's fire in hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Thank you, you could come back. You laughed. She giggled. You smiled. I won't ask you to laugh, then it'll be too fake. For, for God knows that when you eat from it, this is the devil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What a stupid, moronic thing to say. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he already created them in his image. It was his goal, it was his heart, it was his desire that everything he was, he would put into them so that they would be a reflection of his beauty, his goodness, and his greatness. And so we don't realize that the devil's already lying. Even here he's lying. Oh, God's afraid you're going to be like him. Hey, you know what God wants the most in the church? He wants all of us to look more and more like Jesus. Man, the world would be a different place if the church really looked like Jesus. Turn to somebody and say, he's preaching to you. I know it. He's preaching to you. What a lie. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. What needs food? Your soul or your body? The body. Good for food, pleasing to the eye. What did he appeal to first? The physical body. Remember, he's got to take divine order, turn it upside down. If you don't turn something upside down, you're not going to have confusion. If you have divine order, you'll always have God's progress. But if you have disorder, you will have confusion. 
How many people get lost in confusion, right? Come on, you got to understand the mind of the strategist. This was Satan's very intentional deception. And so it appeals first to the need for food for the body. It appeals to the eye. And then she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, knowledge. What's that? Your soul, mind of your intellect. Body, soul, spirit, nah. If we are gonna walk into a lifestyle of great success by God's definition, we have to recognize this divine progression and recognize that Satan deliberately tried to sabotage. So good to see you. Missed you the last couple of weeks. Good on you. He deliberately sabotaged that progression to get us out of the order of the manufacturer's specifications. And the sooner we recognize this and understand divine order, the sooner we start stepping into the blessings of God. How many of you want to step into the blessings of God? You're in the right place, okay? So when Adam faced the garden of conflict, which is in the garden, which is the garden where your will crosses God's will, he stumbled and fell. Next screen. The dilemma was that he allowed the enemy to distort his perception of God from being a totally good God who only ever wanted the best for Adam and Eve to being a God who wanted to withhold the best from Adam and Eve. Your life experiences, your religious experiences, I didn't say your relationship with Jesus, religious experiences, life experiences, tend to cast a shadowy image of God. And if you've had difficult relationship with parents, a father or a mother figure, or people in authority, an older brother that you should be able to trust, an older sister, it always casts a slur and a negative image on anyone who is an authority figure above you. Perception, deception. The devil does it by bringing a distortion in our perception of who God is. And this is how he managed to seduce them so that instead of listening to their spirit, they listened to their soul. Your soul is filled with the circumstances that you've experienced in life. And you know what? Most of us are governed by the history of the circumstances of our life. And that history often affects our logic, our thought process, our belief systems, our memories, our emotions, and we make bad decisions out of poorly informed, broken history. Now this time, turn to somebody and say, he's talking about me. But I'm being changed from glory to glory. Come on, say that. But I'm being changed from glory to glory. Amen. All right. How are we doing? Okay, got to wrap this up. What you believe about God will positively or negatively affect everything that happens in your life. You know, it dawned on me as I was preparing this series and I don't follow schedules, you know, oh, pastors, here's a schedule of what you should preach all year long. As I was preparing the series that came out of a time of prayer, uh, I, I started to go back to some of my notes and I noticed that I ended 2021 with a series called Restoring the Image of God and I ended 2022 preaching the God you perceive is the God you receive from. And I thought, wow, I think God's trying to tell us something. Your perception of God, what you believe about God, will affect everything in your life. Amen. When Adam believed that perception, deception, what is perception, deception? Having a wrong perception about the character of God. That is the ultimate perception, deception. Turn to somebody, say it. The ultimate Perception deception is having a wrong image of God. 
This will always be our number one stumbling block to our greatest successes in life. If you're really gonna be successful, the number one obstacle is having a wrong perception of God. Here's the conflict in a nutshell. We're not convinced that God's will for our lives is always better than our will for our lives. What makes it so hard to say, God, your will be done and not my will, is that we are convinced that what we want is better for us than what God wants. And what you have to understand is that God is so unadulterated, he is so pure, he is so not diluted with any kind of mixture. He is so pure and so righteous and so good that he can't help but want the absolute best even for the most broken person in the world. You see, we judge God by what we know about ourselves. The people we like the most that treat us the nicest we want more good for. And the people who treat us bad, we want less good for. And the people who treat us absolutely like dirt, eh, we don't want any good for them. And the problem about judging, we make judgments on other people based on what we know about ourselves. And so we make judgments about God based on our character. And so when we're not performing well or we're, we know that we're broken or we've made mistakes or we've failed, we find it hard to believe that God still wants the absolute best for our lives. We're not like that. So we can't perceive God like that. We judge God after who we are. Now we have created God in our image. See how the devil turns everything upside down? Divine order into demonic disorder. It's the only way to have confusion. Somebody turn to somebody and say, that's good preaching. If we were convinced that God is so good that his will for our lives is always better than our will for our lives, there would be no guard in a conflict. It would be easy to say, God, not my will your will be done. We're gonna to go to the next screen. You might wanna take a picture of this here. The next screen. When we believe that our will for our lives is better than God's will for our lives, we actually believe that we are gooder than God. Now let me just make a side note. I'm gonna keep reading in a second. That is not correct grammar. <laughs> Just want you to know that I know it's not correct grammar. But it helps to stick in your mind. So I'm going to say it again. When we believe that our will for our lives is better than God's will for our lives, we actually believe that we are gooder than God. And when we believe that we are gooder than God, we have effectively taken God off his throne and exalted ourselves above him. I have a better plan, a gooder plan for Rob Scarallo than God could possibly have. That's why I'm gonna hang on to what I want and not let go of it. And that is the basic problem in the garden of conflict and it will always be historic of humanity and the sooner we wanna break out of the curse, the sooner we will learn to trust that God is absolutely good and his will for my life is always better than my will for my life. Now turn to somebody and say, he's preaching to all of us. Look at the last line. Everything I just read, that's exactly what Satan did in his own fall. He thought his will and his way was better than God's will and God's way. And he effectively, in his heart, removed God off the throne and exalted himself above God. Interesting. Misery loves company. And here's the devil in his miserable mistake 
wanting to take us exactly down the same pathway. Recognize it. If you're a new Christian, recognize this. Trust it. God's will for your life will always be better than your will for your life. He is so good. He is so pure. He is so right on the money every time. You can't get a better picture for your life than God's picture for your life. God's life for you is better than your life for you. Praise God. All right. Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, your will be done. Oh, wow, that's funny. Pastor Carlos, I don't know how I did this, but somehow I pressed record on my notes, and it just rewrote my notes. This is what it says, autocorrect. Show me a picture of, for your wife and dog's picture for you, awake dog's right for you is better. <laughs> You're not supposed to say amen now. <laughs> Holy moly. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. I saw these lines going up and down. I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what I did. I tapped it like that, and all of a sudden I'm reading my notes. I didn't write that. <laughs> I need to get my laptop covered in the blood of Jesus because it's doing its will instead of God's will. Look, Jesus prayed. What was that? Yes, perception, deception. Look, I'm closing with this. I'm done. Jesus prayed. And out of what he prayed, he surrendered his will to God's will. And out of that one act came the greatest act of courage, of love, and benefit for all of humanity. He prayed, Father, not my will, your will be done. Isn't it interesting that when the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, it's recorded, verse 9 to 10, those are the only two verses I'm going to read. They said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus starts with, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come. If you've been here in the church, you'll know in the Hebrew it means erkomahi. It's a present tense verb. Make the declaration, your kingdom is here and now, and it's happening. Your kingdom is here, it is happening, it is now, it's around me. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the problem when we read that, we think of everybody else, the world. Your world starts with you. And so Jesus was teaching us to pray, your will be done here in this world first. Isn't it interesting that the moment the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he immediately reestablishes divine order. Our Father, God's first, who is in heaven, blessed be your name. Jesus was asked, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus said, there are three universal laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. You gotta love God first above everything. Learn to love your neighbor and learn to respect yourself because you will never love your neighbor if you can't love you. Interesting, he's asked how to pray. First thing he does is starts reestablishing divine order. Our Father who is in heaven, God's gotta be first in your life. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom is here. Your kingdom is now. Your kingdom is happening. Therefore, let your will be done in this world the way your will is done in heaven. Does God want his will to be done in the whole world outside of us? Absolutely. But to bring my point Clearly home. If I could take a magic wand and wave it over the whole world so that everyone would come under a change of mind, a different atmosphere, a completely different way of thinking. If I could take a magic wand of faith 
and wave it over the whole world and cause everyone simultaneously and forever to have a mindset that says, Father, your will be done, not my will. How many of you think it'd be a different world? Do you know what? That one stroke of genius would bring the world back to before the fall. Reinstating divine order. The first step to your greatest successes in life will be learning how to trust that God wants to do more good for you than you want to do. The garden of conflict is my garden of fear where I'm convinced God really doesn't love me that much. I love me more. But in my perception, deception, I take him off the throne and I put this person on the throne and I make myself exalted above him. And without realizing it, I am reiterating the same words Lucifer said when he said, I will exalt my throne above God's. We never saw that coming, did we? <clears throat> I don't say that to drown you. I say it to rattle you so that you will understand how important it is in every aspect of life to say, God, not my will. Your will be done. I'm going to close with this picture. It'll help you see everything with great clarity. You can put me out in the middle of Tampa City. And I can look down a city block and I might be able to see down two, maybe three. But God forbid the road curves, I cannot see around the curve. Even if a city block in Tampa was perpetually straight, I could only see so far. When I go to the beach, I see that horizontal line where the water meets the sky and it looks like that's the end and I would fall off. I can't see the sea behind the sea or beyond the sea. This phrase, my, God, your will, not my will, is best pictured in this illustration. I can only see so far ahead, even if it's dead straight. I can't see beyond that horizon. I can't see around the right turn or the left turn. But God is exalted above the heavens and he has a bird's eye view. And no one can direct our lives better than he can. Stand and give him an ovation. Come on. Amen. The purpose of this series, today's message, is to start putting us on the track to our greatest successes. And in all honesty, irrespective of your hurts and your fears, and maybe religion has hurt you, it's quite possible. A lot of things have been done and said in the name of God that weren't God at all. I'm sorry. But the purpose of this message and this series is so that we will see God as God is because who God is is a God that's so good he wants the absolute best for your life. And the conflict, the garden of conflict ceases to be the garden of conflict when I am delivered from perception deception. And I see that God is good, Les. Les, when I can see, he loves me more than I could ever love me. And he wants the best toys for me than I could ever want. He wants the best scenario and the best situation than I could ever want. When God is put back on the throne of ultimate goodness, divine order starts to flow in our lives again. The devil could not bring demonic disorder 
until he obscured the perception of God. Maybe that's why the last two years God's had me end on a message or a series about who he is. It's so important. It really is. Religion has changed the face of God. But Jesus came to show us the face of God. I have people, worldly people say, I, I, I love Jesus. I, I love who he is, but I, I, I don't like religion. I say, ditto. Doctrines of demons. I want to encourage you. You probably never thought about the fact that when you've insisted, no, God, I'm holding on to this. I don't care. I, th this is what I want. You probably never thought that in that process you were pushing God off the throne and taking his place. And so it's something we do unconsciously, not realizing it. But now that the Holy Spirit has brought it to the forefront of our attention, we need to, every one of us, every one of us, because we all do it in varying degrees, need to come to the place where we say, hey, God, I need to set this record straight. There are things in my past I didn't ask you about your will. I just knew what I wanted. What I love about God is that he doesn't hold a grudge. And when we genuinely come to the place of recognizing a mistake he lets us go and he will take the curse and reverse the curse and bring the blessing it's called redemption he doesn't just redeem me so that I have life in heaven he redeems all the messes in my life somebody say amen somebody say that's a good God it is a good God he didn't just save me so that religiously I don't go to hell, I go to heaven. He came to save me from the mess that I created in life so he could walk me through my best life in Jesus. I want you to do that because I honestly believe that if we all really do this and think about this beyond this service, we will start to position ourselves for our best year ever. I mean that. I do. I don't preach sermons. I, look, I talk to you like I would talk to my son, like I would talk to my daughter. When my kids come to me for advice and counsel, I get so happy because I want to steer them right. They, they can't, until they become parents, they can't imagine how much I want their lives to go right. That's how God is. And no one will ever love you more. And no one will ever want the best for you than God. Amen. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus Christ in your heart, that's where it starts. That's the first place where we say, okay, God, I'm not living my life my way anymore. Jesus, I want a relationship. Come into my life. It's called being born again. You get a second chance at life. If you've never asked Jesus Christ in your heart, honestly, doing that is the very first place where we start to say, not my will, your will. Hey, God, I've been living a world without you. Now, I don't want to live in the world without you. If you've never actually done that, if you've never established and allowed Jesus to come into your life and be God in your life, if you've never been born again, raise your hand if you want to do that right now. Come on, put your hand up and say, I want this. This is what I want. I want Jesus Christ in my heart. Don't be shy. Forget the person next to you. Don't let them hold you back. Put your hand up right now. Whether you're watching online or you're here in this room, put your hand up and say, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I see that hand. Thank you. You can put it down, ma'am. God bless you. Anybody else? Okay. We're all going to pray this prayer and 
those that raised their hands or wanted to, I want you to pray this from your heart. We're going to ask Jesus to come into our lives. If you've never done a new Christian's course, straight after this service, we'll feed you lunch. Seven weeks, we will lay a foundation in your life. If today's the first time you're asking Jesus in your heart, you don't have to wait six weeks. You could join us today. We'll feed you lunch, and we'll give you a study book and a Bible so that you could follow Jesus. Everyone, that young lady who raised her hand especially, together with everyone, pray this prayer. Dear God, I get it. You really do love me. The way I am, broken, you love me. So much so. You came to earth and you died on that cross for me. Jesus Christ, I'm talking to you. Come into my heart right now. I welcome you to live inside me, to lead me, to guide me, to help me. I've made mistakes. I sinned. I broke some rules. I'm sorry. I want to learn how to do it your way. Forgive me of my mistakes and help me with my tomorrows. Father, I thank you that you just heard me and I just started a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for coming into my heart right now and forgiving me. Amen. If you have